about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. Hello, and welcome to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie-by-movie and television series-by-television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time we're taking a look at Iron Man, the first film in the series released in May 2008, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Ken Loach's football fan comedy Looking for Eric, Martin Scorsese's Rolling Stones documentary Shine a Light, or Jennifer Aniston in Marley and Me. I'm Tim Worthington. Here's what I had to say about Iron Man when I live-tweeted my Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch. A genius move to kick off the series with nothing overlooked character with plenty of explosions and no angst. Also strange to think how contentiously topical it was at the time. But that's what I thought about it, though. And joining me to give his thoughts on Iron Man is co-host of the Don't Let's Chart podcast, Phil Catterall. Phil, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at, at Phil5000, on anchor.fm slash Don't Let's Chart. And uh, if you go there and listen to those, then you can find anywhere else that I am from that. So, but yeah, that's where you should go. Go there. So before we go any further, Phil... What happens in Iron Man? Tony Stark is a genius weapons engineer who gets uh, injured by one of his own weapons. He is then held hostage by people that want him to make more weapons. And instead of making more weapons, he makes a big robot suit that he kills quite a lot of people with in a sequence that's kind of lifted directly from uh, a comic that I suspect we're going to talk about in a bit. Then he goes home, builds another suit while his, I suppose, partner in in his company, basically develops his own copy of the original suit, but bigger and nastier, and then there's a big fight. Other stuff also happens, but that's kind of it in a nutshell, isn't it? I think that's fair. Pretty much, which brings me on to my second question. Phil, what did you know about Iron Man before you saw Iron Man? I got into comics in about 2000-ish. I mean, obviously, Transformers comics were before that, but they don't really sort of count for this. And... I started off with the Ultimate Universe stuff, which was Marvel's attempt in, I think, 2000, or at least the early 2000s, to sort of reboot everything because their entire universe was so confusing. So they were just like, if you're new, just read this one because it's new and it doesn't have all the baggage of the other one. So I sort of knew the Ultimate Universe Iron Man, which I think this film takes quite a lot of cues from because the Playboy thing is a lot more ultimate iron man than iron man originally was in the in the regular marvel universe you know the the heavy drinking happens in regular marvel universe happens because everything's going wrong for him post building the suit rather than because he's bored which is what happens here (laughs) um so yeah i knew a bit of regular universe iron man i knew a bit more ultimate iron man i knew enough iron man that when they announced they'd cast robert downey jr i was just like oh of course yeah that is exactly the correct choice i don't know who else you could have cast that would have been better than that so yeah that's kind of where I was at with it. Well, I'll come back to the second sort of my backstory with Iron Man. But it's interesting that you brought up Robert Downey Jr. straight away because he is what makes this film. Yep. And the thing is, apparently, John Favreau, who 
he did he directed did they also co-write the film or when i looked at the writer's credits he's not in there maybe he did a, right. a pass on it or script editing or punch up or something but he's not in the writer's credits i don't think but obviously he played happy hogan as well he but did. apparently had a real fight to get anyone to agree to casting robert downey jr even though he knew he'd be perfect because it's kind of been forgotten given how successful he's been for such a long time now but he was kind of in a a personal career doldrums shortly before being cast as Iron Man. Yes, he was. I mean, he had been in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in 2005, which was at least critically successful. I really liked that. But there have been other things. like He nearly wasn't in. Now, this would have been no great loss as far as I'm concerned because they should not have made this film. But he nearly wasn't in The Singing Detective because they thought he was too much of a financial risk. And apparently, he took a very low fee for Iron Man. Yeah. Just because he wanted to do it, which I had no idea of until earlier today. I was quite impressed by that, but he really is what carries this film. One thing I noticed me watching is there are long sequences that just tech sequences with him developing the suit. Yeah. And what stops them becoming boring is him. Yeah. The way he delivers all the lines, all the wisecracks. He is fantastic. I don't think there was a better way he could have started the film series off. But my personal thing with Iron Man was it's interesting that. He was never one of my favourite Marvel characters. I always come back to it. I'm sure I've mentioned this a lot in the forthcoming episodes, but my favourite Marvel comic ever was one I got in 1979 when I was five when we moved house. I was giving it to keep me quiet while, you know, the house moving was going on. It was the issue with the Avengers where I think some bin men find Crusher Creel, the absorbing man's remains, <laughs> rubbish, and he comes back and... Obviously, a lot of my favourite characters in the Avengers at that point, Captain Marvel, or Ms. Marvel as she was then, mm-hmm. Wonder Man, Hawkeye's around and so on. Iron Man seemed to be someone who was just there. It was like, oh, he's like a man in a robot suit. Oh, that's interesting. Even things like Secret Wars, he never really stood out for me. No. And so I was quite sceptical about the idea of an Iron Man film, but I went to see it, and I was just knocked out by it straight away. It's fantastic, and it's the way he plays Tony Stark as well. He is an objectionable person, but not a person you dislike, really. He's not a creep. He's fundamentally decent. He just enjoys and appreciates what he has in life. And that does make the contrast all the more sharp when he, you know, runs into problems with the business or when he's kidnapped by terrorists and so on. He's like a non-dreadful Elon Musk in some ways. And even when he escapes, it's not because he realises that he's been brought down by some of his own weapons technology. Obviously, he has... takes away something for that but it's not oh boo hoo hoo i must don sackcloth and ashes and save the world it's kind of these morons are taken by equipment and they think they can all be prisoner with it and i'm gonna show them that they can't yeah and that is there's no angst to it at all it is in a weird way it's a very positive film i think that's fair i mean i think it's interesting that as the films go on more and more of the problems that the Avengers have to deal with are kind of his fault. But yeah, you, you're right. If you looking at, you know, the, the headline cast apart as far as, you know, the, I'm going to go with what Wikipedia's on it. So Robert Downey Jr. Fine. Everyone else is pretty much bigger than him at this point. So Terrence Howard was doing really well at this at this point. Jeff Bridges is just I, you say Robert Downey Jr. carries this. Bridges is so good in this. Yes, 
yeah. Yes, admittedly, it does create a problem when Endgame comes around in that Tony Stark makes a reference to the Big Lebowski, which has caused existential angst in me ever since he did that. Because who played the Big Lebowski in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Was it still Jeff Bridges, and does Jeff Bridges just look like Obadiah Stane? Or... Do you know about the line that was cut from Infinity War? No. No shit, Sherlock. <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. to Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, that would have been... Ah, they should have left that in. But yeah, so so Terrence Howard, Jeff Bridges and Gwyneth Paltrow are all significantly bigger than Downey was at this point. No question whatsoever. But we wouldn't have the 20 films that we've had without him in this one absolutely it's also interesting as well that it's kind of i mean in the comics in the original iron man timeline i think he was captured in vietnam i think i'm right about that and he developed the iron man armor to escape from there but in this it's afghanistan which is obviously a very topically it's not right to say satire it was referencing what was going on at that time and i mean that uh, but we haven't seen anything like this for a long time, really. But that hostage video they make of him is horribly familiar. Yeah. And yet, it's of its time. But it's still, there's a resonance that's not gone away, which is really interesting. It's not dated because of that frame of reference. It still feels sort of pertinent now. No, I mean, it's it, so the, the sort of rebooting it to Afghanistan is taken from the, the comic that I said I was going to reference earlier. Ron Ellis and Adi Granov did like a six-issue Iron Man series called Extremis, which it redoes the origin in about six pages, and that bit is like the opening sequence of of this film and then they kind of borrowed bits of the rest of it for the third film but not really um sort of ish kind of it's taken quite heavily from from that comic even down to like the design of the suit so adi granov is credited as suit consultant for for this film it's very much his designs obviously other people have done stuff as well but if you you could hold up like particularly the mark one which is such a good well that's first on screen in full and just sort of smacking people around and firing flamethrowers at things it's like yeah no you've nailed that well done good work it's brilliant because that's kind of based on i mean i remember when i first saw the original iron man costume yeah, yeah, yeah. i laughed out loud it still looks ridiculous even now yes but somehow for the film because uh, apparently favreau wanted to have different stages of the armor in so it was more believable as a uh, you know he didn't just invent the fantastic one from nowhere there were stages of it i think there's it's a three or four in this, but somehow they took that original design, that big sort of solid, lunking, great, silvery grey thing, and made it look amazing. Yep. And the thing that I like is when he gets back and he's redesigning it, the first thing he does is just take all the weapons off it <laughs> because, you know, it's entirely in keeping with, you know, effectively stopping all the military contracts with the company. It's like, I don't, don't want to do that anymore, so I'm just going to remove all that. It does get a bit of... There's quite a lot of sort of dark humour in that escape sequence, particularly the bit where the guy stands right behind him, points a gun at him, and the ricochet just hits him in the, yes! in the head and he immediately <laughs> dies. Yeah, that's the thing. You do laugh at that, and it's really not that. Nice, no it's it? not and it's it's one of those things it's like because they deserve it uh, <laughs> that yeah all all the suit designs are spot on and it, yeah it wouldn't have worked if they hadn't nailed that i mean but there's particularly the bit where he goes and rescues the hostages later on and then just sort of shoots the rocket at the tank and just walks away while it explodes in the background it's like yep yeah, no that's well that's it they don't take i mean it is just over two hours 
I think setting, you know, a template that the Marvel films will follow, but it doesn't take its foot off the pedal no. throughout. There's so many great bits that are so short that are packed into it. They're forgotten about, like the first proper test flight he does back in America. Yeah. That is just thrilling when he's just zooming through the sky. No menace comes into it, nothing else. Nope. It's just about a test flight. And there's the fact that, really, the whole film is just building up to two Iron Men punching each <laughs> other for a very long time, which sometimes is all you want from a movie, really. Absolutely. But, I mean, that test flight is its the only case of Chekhov's ice I've ever seen in a film. Let's give it its due. Um, <laughs> that's why that test flight scene is there. It's to establish that, isn't it? But, yeah, it's... It is a fun a fun sequence. As is the first time he actually suits up and it's all the, the whirring and the, the... At some point in all that, there's like music from the Iron Man animated series as well, which is... Yes. <laughs> which is fun that they've thrown that in there. Tony Stark makes you feel he's a cool It's worth saying that there hadn't been many attempts at adapting Iron Man before that. There'd been that 60s cartoon mm-hmm. that you mentioned. There was an early 90s one. I think it showed up in Spider-Man and Amazing Friends a lot. Yeah, so so that early 90s Marvel animation, the Iron Man cartoon's kind of two different cartoons because that and the Fantastic Four were in a block with, I can't remember what the other thing was that was in there called the Marvel Action Hour, which had like Stan Lee hosted segments in between where he read out birthday cards and stuff and yeah, fine. They completely retooled both cartoons after the first series series and made them a bit more comic-like instead of being silly off because the first series of iron man is really bad that cartoon it's not good at all and they retool it and make it a lot better yeah they and and then they start crossing over with the x-men cartoon and the spider-man cartoon and i mean x-men and spider-man are kind of why we got an iron man film because marvel had sold off the rights to all the stuff that people wanted to see films of and read comics about the big three that we've got now you know you cap iron man and thor were not the most popular characters by a long way they were just what marvel had left at that point but the issue i have with the iron man cartoon theme showing up which i think it does more than once because i think there's a big band version when they're gambling mm. and also there's the ringtone he calls through when he's flying back yes which is one of the best moments but I'm sure people were rolling in the aisles in America. Over here, I believe those early Marvel cartoons might be on in the 60s. They never really resurfaced over here. And so it will have been to a lot of people just a tune that was on the screen. Yes, yes. I mean, I remember being quite confused when the things like Seinfeld are saying, when Captain America throws his mighty shield, and thinking, what? What is that? You know, it's something the audience are having hysterics at. But <laughs> yeah, it's something that didn't really travel. And it's quite odd, really, that you were expected to know that, but a lot of people wouldn't have done I think it was... It was. I didn't know what it was the first time I heard it, to be honest. And it, it, it was thankfully not enough in the foreground that it was a it was a big deal. But you're right, yeah, if you throw references in... it's What you're trying to do with the reference, really, I think John Favreau was mostly just trying to go, I know what Iron Man is, so... 
Oh, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. And you do get Iron Man by Black Sabbath. Which you, of course a lot you do. Of people think was based on Iron Man, and it isn't. It's, <laughs> it's a robot from the future that's sent back, and he got turned to steel in the great magnetic field. Cool. And so he couldn't warn mankind of the great danger that was coming, because he was no longer iron, he was steel. Well, again, in, in the extremist comic run, it is retroactively uh, established that Tony Stark called it Iron Man after the song, just... <laughs> Because I think we're analysts thought that would be funny. So that's it's not really that funny. I, I quite like it. I quite like the idea that people think that it's na- the, the song was named after the thing, but because you've <laughs> updated the origin to Afghanistan in the early 2000s, it now works the other way. Thanks to Marvel's weird sliding timeline that they keep doing. It's always five years after the Fantastic Four went into space, apparently, or something like that. I can't remember exactly what their stance is. But speaking of references, what I noticed was, as well as the references to things from Marvel history, there were a lot of things. It surprised me how many sort of pointing towards what was going to happen in the future films. I mean, amongst other things, you've got... There's a kind of setup for both Captain America the First Avenger and Agent Carter, the TV series, when they talk about what Howard Stark, Tony's father, did during the war. Yep. Phil Coulson from Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. plays quite a big role in this. Yeah, and... It's easy to forget because of everyone else that's in it. And also... Does the, the terrorist group are linked to the Ten Rings? Yes. He's been mentioned in quite a few films. I think they've played varying degrees of roles, but we're coming up to Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which is apparently going to be where Marvel's martial artist takes an entire terrorist organisation by himself. The Ten Rings thing, I think, was supposed to be just a nod to the Mandarin in the first place, and we sort of get the Mandarin later but we don't really, it's, you know, if Iron Man had, like, a main villain, probably Mandarin, Whiplash, obviously, we get in Iron Man 2, and Justin Hammer is in there as well. It feels like they were going to set up, he's going to have to deal with the Mandarin, they sort of established that one terrorist guy is, like, going to be that, and then they don't do anything with that. (laughs) That goes nowhere, that goes absolutely nowhere. I think it works better that there isn't a big bad in the first film. Oh, no, absolutely, absolutely. He doesn't need to, but I I feel like they were setting him up to be the big bad in a subsequent film, and then they didn't, so... What do you think of... Because I think they get overshadowed, really, and they play an equally strong part in the films going, you know, right the way up to the present. Gwyneth Paltrow and Jon Favreau. Favreau doesn't have a lot to do in this one. He's pretty much comic relief in Iron Man 2. And then that's kind of the role that he fills throughout the rest of it, really. He does some, you know, mentoring to uh, to Peter Parker-ish kind of later on. But yeah, he's mostly a comic relief character. There's one scene specifically in Iron Man 2 that is pretty much just, as far as I'm concerned, is just to make fun of him for not being that good at things. In terms of Pepper, yeah, I mean, she's like key to the whole thing from tony's point of view by the time we get to the end of all this i'm very confused by my feelings for gwyneth paltrow in these films i'm very confused (laughs) by them because i normally find her quite tiresome in basically everything including real life oh 100 200 in real life i i cannot stand what she does with her money and influence (laughs) i could say something else no with her her goop nonsense that will potentially injure many people a year but in i all right fine i fancy pepper potts i don't understand why i don't fancy (laughs) Gwyneth paltrow 
that's not correct. I don't understand why. Well, you think you've got problems. Gamora is green. Well, there's nothing. Look, I've been dealing with that problem since I first saw reruns of Star Trek. So don't, <laughs> don't even. Gamora being green is not an issue. The only other thing that I wanted to to sort of throw in is you've got Paul Bettany as Jarvis, like oh, it's yeah. about the third scene. He's just doing a voice in the background and that goes off into its own entire thing. I don't know if they ever thought that they were going to just cast him as Vision. He's great as Vision, obviously. It was just a weird sort of route to it. Also, this one's really... I was really confused watching this. I know it's the first one, but having the Paramount logo pop up at the start was very confusing given the state of affairs that the whole thing is in now. And I don't know how they got these rights back but couldn't get the Hulk ones back. I'm very confused by that. Well, speaking of setups, I mean, perfect end to a perfect film. I love the post credit scene, which for anyone who hasn't seen it, I hope you all have. You know, I hope you all didn't even just turn the DVD or Blu-ray off during the credits <laughs> and think, I've seen that now. But where he's confronted in his apartment by Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury, it's perfect because it's less than two minutes. Mm-hmm. I doubt a lot of people watch it because, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Marvel was ever an obscurist pursuit or whatever, but... This was a massive blockbuster film. A large number of the people who went to see it didn't know who Nick Fury was. Mm-hmm. In less than half a minute, it explains who he is, where they're going to move forward with this, what's important, and just sets up in your head there are going to be other superheroes coming in. Now, you know, you've probably heard of Captain America, heard of the Hulk and so on. I just think that's there's no messing about with it. It just tells you what you need to know mm-hmm. straight away. And it is something they've really kept up with the post credit scenes, I think. The first few do, the rest are almost trailers for films that they've already got in production at that point. So it's not quite the same sort of deal. Again, I know we talked briefly about the Ultimate Universe stuff earlier on. Samuel L. Jackson is basically the model that they used for Ultimate Universe Nick Fury. It's like not even subtle. It's blatantly just someone drawing Samuel L. Jackson and (laughs) then they managed to get him in. I don't know if it was that Samuel L. Jackson went, hey, you're using my face. I get to do that now or what. But yeah. Okay, well, to close on, there's only one thing left for me to ask. Phil, if you had a jet-propelled weaponized nanotechnology-powered suit of flying armor... What would you use it for? I mean, it cut down on my commute. Okay, well, if you enjoyed this, there's more coming up soon. Don't forget to go to timworthington.org where you can find, well, more stuff about Marvel. And also buy my book, Can't Help Thinking About Me, which has got lots about me and the cinema in it. But just one thing left to say, Phil, thank you. And Excelsior. Sure, let's go with that. <laughs>